Hello, all you lovely listeners, and welcome back to Season 3 of Therapy Works, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. The mission of this podcast is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations that may contain difficult emotions can be profoundly healing. Let's see who is joining us this week. David Howard, I am really thrilled to meet you. I, I mean, obviously, I've been aware of your work as an actor and as a presenter and been a big fan, but... As a therapist, your documentary, Psychosis and Me, blew me away. And I watched it like three times when it first came out. It felt like that opened up something to you that you had no idea. I'm not going to speak for you, so I'm going to ask you questions, but just let me say where I've got to with you. <laughs> with I'm, your... not to have a... I'm not going to have much else to say. <laughs> Sorry. But your the paperback's coming out of your book, which goes further, maybe I don't belong here. Mm. So my question always to my guests is, what is a particular challenge you are facing or have faced? Um, well, I mean, my challenge I, I, has always, I think, been a kind of happiness or sense of um, balance with my identity. Sometimes I might think I'm not enough. I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. And I sometimes judge myself, have this constant critical voice where I'm battling with myself about the nature of my identity. And sometimes that, that can be very destabilizing. That's my biggest challenge. Keeping it together is my biggest challenge in spite of all this noise going on in my head. I mean, that is a big challenge, isn't it? That sort of sense of keeping yourself yourself and being mm. okay enough in yourself. Mm. Mm. In a way, given all the threats to your identity. And what I understand from identity is that at the core of every different aspect of our identities as a man, as or our race, as our whatever you know, our gender, whatever it is, that we need to feel that we are loved and lovable and that we belong. Yes, very true. And there is a sense in me, as I speak in the book, hard as I try, as though I don't belong. And, and that's a constant fight for me, whether I, uh, you know, there's part of, part of me which rejects myself because there's that, there's that English part of myself. And then there's this other side of me, um, more urban, black. It, it comes into conflict with that English identity sometimes. And I find that that is the thing that sort of caused this split in my identity. This British English identity, little English boy, and then this big black man. Uh, there's two very different uh, people uh, and approaches and it remains a constant shifting platform for me. Does that make sense? It really makes sense because as you're speaking, I was thinking about 
those two aspects of you need to be allowed to sit comfortably side by side. As a English boy who grew up with Morecambe and Wise and um, Benny Hill and, Benny Hill uh, and, and English breakfast from your mum, all of it, all of it, is accepting that and 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 I think that began with the documentary. That this, this explosion, all of it, happened once the documentary came out. Um, uh, having to put these two parts of myself together, and I had I hadn't really dealt with that. Um, so for people who haven't seen the documentary, do you want to tell us how the split between this big black guy and the the small white little boy, basically, mm, mm. brought up in Birmingham in a white street with white neighbours, but a lot of racism, a lot of really brutal racism. What happened? Every time I come back to it, I sort of have to make sense of it too, you know, because it's quite a fundamental thing for me. In some ways, there's no sense to be made of it because it, I mean, there's a narrative that you're Mm. finding of what happened. Yes. But as I understand it, as an outsider looking at you, Mm. how could you ever make sense of being told to assimilate and be white when you're born into a black body with black skin and then mercilessly, continuously rejected. Those two things you can't make sense of. It is crazy making. (laughs) You're absolutely right. And part of my therapy has been about, as I said, addressing that. Short short version, I sent out a tweet uh, in 2017 on World Mental Health Day, just saying randomly, uh, randomly, because a friend of mine had told me to, you know, I, as somebody who's, I mean, the tweet was, as somebody who's had a breakdown, I just want to say, get some help if you can and, and look after yourself today. I have had, I've had a breakdown and I've done, I haven't done too bad since. Have a great day. Uh, happy World Moral Mental Health Day. Sent the tweet, turned my phone off, jumped on a plane because I was flying to Vancouver where I was filming, flew to Vancouver, turned my phone back on on the other side and they were like, 40,000 retweets. And my agent was on the phone, BBC had been on the phone, ITV had been on the phone, everybody had been on the phone. Oh my God, you had a breakdown. You had a breakdown. You had a breakdown. Because I tell my friends, but I didn't realize that it um, was, I guess, going public. Uh, and that led to an article, me writing an article in The Guardian. That then led to, uh, a, a friend of mine who was with me during my breakdown um, read the article and said, That's not how I remember it. Hmm. And I thought, oh, have I got this wrong? Have I misremembered everything? So I, I thought, hmm, it would be an interesting thing to find out what all that was about. So I pitched a documentary to a friend of mine, and um, they went off to the BBC, and lo and behold, I'm doing this documentary called Psychosis and Me, which wasn't called Psychosis and Me when I, when I agreed to do the documentary. It was just a documentary where I went on this journey to find out what happened to me. And I really didn't even think about it. I didn't even think. It's so bizarre because I was filming. I was filming for like nine months in, in Vancouver, so I didn't really think, even think about it. But suddenly I was back and filming this documentary and I, and I didn't realise the enormity of it. So two things as you say that. I didn't think about it mm. would be a defence, right? Like I can't, I don't know how to go there. No, that's that's interesting. Um, yes and possibly. Um but, I mean, purely for the sake of the documentary, 
I decided it would be best to just go on a journey. So it's more live. It's more real. I mean, it's more spontaneous. Yeah, and it's more authentic. And that really led to the problems because I, I then walked into all the truth of when I picked up my medical records from 30 years ago. I picked up my medical records that were, were in the, the bowels of the Whittington Hospital, Psychiatric Hospital. And I had to read them. And I, there was a scene where I had to read. In the documentary, they take me back to the psychiatric hospital where I was sectioned. And as soon as I got close to it, I started to recognize it. All my pretense, all of my bravado immediately started to slip. Yeah, you can see that. Uh, and then my friend started crying when he was recounting the, his experience of it. And I really suddenly realized I was in trouble. I suddenly realized, you know, I, I, I'd completely buried all of that trauma, the pain of that, the experience of it. It was awful. It was so awful. My best friend was standing there in, in tears, in tears yeah, yeah. you know, remembering it. I mean, the, the reality really scared the pants off me. But that's but I wanted to have that. Not that yeah. I wanted to have that experience, but you wanted it to uh, be real. Which I wanted it to be real. That's why I, I didn't read it. it wasn't no, I totally a get that. Okay. A defense. It was that I just wanted to. Experience. I was being a smart ass. You were right. That's okay. <laughs> but you said there was two things. That was clever of you. But also, unconsciously, when you sent out the tweet, I didn't think about it. It's flippant, and that's a sign of how... Um, You'd squished it into nothing. Yes. Absolutely, completely, yes. And then was absolutely shocked when it wasn't. <laughs> I was terrified. It was really a scary place to be. Uh, it really was. And also, like, walking towards the Whittington Hospital... Yeah. Trauma memories are ignited by our senses, sight, sound, touch, and smell. Mm. So your friend's trauma was ignited, but your, yours would have been ignited by looking at him. But totally. also there would have been the trauma memory that did then. Mm. Flood in. That was all to do with race. I, the page I opened... It was really scary, and I remember I write about that page in my book when I say, you know, the page I opened, it said, patient believes he has merged hearts with a young black boy. And I thought, that's just so bizarre. I've been in therapy now since the documentary. I specifically sought out a black therapist because I wanted to address something, particularly about a male black therapist, and that's been extremely helpful because I've really been able to identify that black boy, I think, and realise how vulnerable he was and how much yeah. I really haven't taken care of him. Yeah. So. Uh, I really feel for him, I must say. Yeah, he got really chewed up. Went to a football match and he got sort of belted out of there by abuse. Mm. The terror he must have felt, but also the confusion, like he wasn't doing anything. I didn't just, I, I had no idea. So so you, you're not, you're not, I say you're not aware of it. Obviously you're aware of, of, of the experience of, of why they're chased because you're black um but that's it it's, it's not like it's nothing personal <laughs> you know but 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 um um i guess the trauma of that if if your black identity is, is always only defined by terror attack yeah and attacks and racism you can sort of bury your whole experience of being black i think i 
did. I wasn't as conscious of it. I'm far more conscious of it now, but I wasn't conscious of it then. Um, and, and I think that might have, might, might have had a difference. As you said at the beginning, the challenge you face is this clash of identities of the sort mm. of assimilated, well, not white boy, but assimilated boy who's British. Yeah. Um, and your blackness. Mm. As you were writing the book, it felt to me you were beginning, I mean, you could never make sense of it, like I said, but you were beginning to understand the story that you tell yourself about yourself mm. and that that story before had been a very confused, quite a negative story. Mm. And now it sounds like as you understand yourself and for people listening, wanting to understand you, but also understand themselves with their conflicting identities, because we can have lots of battling identities, is you have to fully allow all of your different identities to live in this container of your being. Mm, 100%. And have each of their stories. And so now you're still battling. So what did you learn from the book or what are you still battling with having done so much work? Well, I'm, and the, the process I'm going, I guess, is, is as, you, as you said, um, allowing those voices to exist, yeah. other identities to exist, not being afraid of them. Um, um, turning towards them yeah. and sort of getting to know them, uh, which can be uncomfortable. Um, turning towards them with compassion and kindness rather than attack and diminishing or... So this is, this is precisely what I mean. This happened within a minute of each other. These two examples happened within a minute. I'm walking down Oxford, Carnaby Street just the other day. Um, I had my headphones in, listened to some music. And I just heard this thing, just noise in the back of my head. And it was somebody screaming at me, like a big black guy screaming at me, literally very violently screaming at me in the middle of Carnaby Street. And he was, he was screaming at me, and yes, you, you. Uncle Tom Harewood, Uncle Tom Harewood, he said. I went, I think you got the wrong guy. He went, no, I'm fucking, I had a fucking wrong. You, you, Uncle Tom Harewood. And I was like, okay. I, obviously, I don't think he was very well. But anyway, he kind of walked off. It was really kind of shaken by it. Of course. So that, that sent off all this Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom. This sent me down this rabbit hole of a self-hatred, identification, self-loathing hole of, you know, sent me down this reel and I was trying to pull myself out of it. And then I'm not a good like, black man. I'm a racist exactly. black guy. And then, then yeah, as, soon, yeah. as soon as I looked up, I looked up, there were these four guys and they are all selling, uh, there was, it's called um, Black Child Literature and they sell um, black literature um, on uh, Oxford Circus, uh, outside Oxford Circus. And just as I kind of put my head up, they all went, oh, my God, it's David Hill. Oh, my God, you're a legend. You're a legend. So I had completely the opposite, the completely the opposite experience. Where they're all saying how much I'd done for the community. And, and I was so shaken. I just said, you know what just happened to me? I told them about it. And they were, they were like, forget that. That guy's just nuts. He said, you're, you know. But he, from having this real kind of, Going down this massive rabbit hole of self-loathing and fear, I was suddenly vaulted back up to this place of no, 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 I, you're, you're you're okay, God. you're okay. Yeah, so bizarre. Literally in the space of sixty seconds. But I think that's the kind of when you say attacks, 
But those are the, you know, getting a, tw- a horrible tweet or dealing with that criticism, sitting with that criticism, going, it's okay, don't worry about it. You know, not being thrown, not try- trying to keep my identity from being, uh, trying, trying to settle it and be happy with myself. I mean, that is so shocking. And I guess my response is, this idea that we don't react when people attack us, I think it's bollocks because <laughs> we're kind of, I mean, we're wired to get into a heightened state to protect ourselves. Yes. And of course we'll have that response, but the thing that makes the difference is how you bring yourself back down. Exactly. Yeah. And take yourself out of it. Yes, yes. And what I was kind of thinking with the clashes were is that we will all have these plastic neural pathways that however much work we do is our kind of ghosts from the past. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And so you recognise that horrible ghost and because it was so terrifying when it happened, you can't not know that you could have that. Mm. So it's a very heightened, like... Yeah. When you, you had a psychotic episode for a number of days, you were five days? You five were... or six days, yeah. Yeah. But I was over, also overly medicated, heavily over medicated. Is that because is, which, you were big and is, black? Yeah. And that's, just, and that's another thing that's, been, that's happened since writing the book, is that several uh, mental health facilities have contacted me to say, that's actually standard practice and we're now looking at that. You know, because well, good because, for you changing. I mean, yeah. awfully, it happened to you. Terrible. Yeah, but it, it's to to know that there's a sense that it's that it happens all the time as a result of fear, fear of the black man. You know, they may they may be over medicated. Yeah, and the sort of awful tropes. Because the other thing I was thinking about psychosis is we never quite know what the roots of psychosis. There could be a genetic predisposition, mm. it can be environmental, it can be brain development, and often the trigger is from heightened stress from and that's a threat. You mm-hmm. know, whether it's a stress from having no money or a stress from performance yes. or stress, absolutely. And that racialized communities that have weather, they have much more negative weather. So they're much more vulnerable to mental illness. But also the thing I was thinking, because I've written a book about transgenerational patterns, and I was linking it to slavery and your family being um, slaves in the Harewood estate, and how that pattern of never belonging comes much further than in being in Birmingham. Oh, without a doubt. And I was thinking about your dad who had a breakdown Mm. And who shut down basically when he came here, didn't he? He just kept his head down. Well, particularly after his breakdown, yeah. I mean, he was never the same. He was never, never the same after after his breakdown. And it was a lovely, you know, great dad in, in Italy. But uh, stresses, I guess, stresses on happiness, too much drinking, um, stresses of life, I think, just... Maybe he felt a shame and fear, fear of like, who am I if I'm this person that can have a breakdown? Frightened of his own emotional totally. being. Totally. 
if I feel love, maybe that will throw me into feeling terror. You know, it's mm. better to feel nothing. True. That's interesting. In terms of uh, generational trauma, I think there there is. Uh, we don't even understand half of that yet. Epigenetics. What is that? Epigenetics is that your genetic predisposition to be heightened under a state of threat mm. is heightened genetically. It's in the womb. Well, there you go. Yeah. And I mean, there's been a lot of research. Rachel Yehuda is the person I've looked at research the most from the Holocaust survivors. But it's also behavioral. So you may have a predisposition that is genetic, but then, mm. of course, environmental factors will either be protective yeah. or um, heighten your vulnerability. Right. Um, and so what they look at is like it's three or four generations, but I would have thought, I mean, you came from Barbados, didn't you? Yes, and I actually have my family three back to 1815. That's amazing. On the Harewood estate, the first freeborn Harewood, or the first slave given the name Harewood, would have been Richard, in my bloodline, Richard Harewood. Um, and he met Betty Rose, and they had a, a son called Bartholomew Harewood. And Bartholomew had Nathaniel, Nathaniel yes. Harewood, and Nathaniel had Romeo Harewood, and Romeo had me. So wow. it's not that far, it's four, four generations. What, as you're saying that, what happens to you? I exist in all that time. It gives you a link to something that's very real. That not, not many people, are, you're not even allowed to talk about, that we, don't, that we don't necessarily even talk about, you know, openly in this country. And the contribution that, those, that Richard and Nathaniel and Bartholomew, the contribution that, that their grandparents, that they made to build half of Howard this. <laughs> to build all of it, to build all of it, to build the structures of Western, all of it, Paris, England, all Portugal, Spain, all of those European colonies. Colonials, all of it, all of, yeah, yeah. All of them. On the sweat of their backs, as it were. Yeah, yeah. So this generational abuse and trauma, I think, probably plays out at some point. I imagine you must feel frigging furious. I don't know. I don't necessarily feel furious, but it's not, it's just knowledge that we know and um, have to learn to you know, deal with you, try and educate when you where you can. And if you don't, you go crazy like I did, I guess. But I, I think that reset that I had after going crazy of understanding more my black identity, not just my English identity, but my black identity, that's been a hugely stabilizing thing in my life. So this knowledge of Africa, this knowledge of my past, this knowledge of everything that was smashed by making the documentary and writing the book and understanding, by by actually finding out about it and, and processing it, I've been able to build a much stronger platform. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I feel quite really happy about that. I'm glad I, I didn't go to my grave without without doing that. I feel like I, the last four years have been really fruitful and useful and great because I've I've actually started to address certain things. I can really hear and see that. It's like you've gone internally and excavated a lot of poison in a way and mm. abuse in every form, but taking it out and looking at it and examining it and not hiding from it and mm. really getting it out in the world as well and having to deal with people's response to it. Which is always sort of it's always alarming 
Yeah, scary. Mm, really is. But, the, you know, shame grows in silence and darkness, and it feels like in being open and looking at yourself first and being open to yourself mm. about yourself and then taking it out into the world. I call it running naked through the village. Once I've run naked through the village, I've already done it. <laughs> That's how it feels for me. I'm, I've done it. I've sort of I felt like it was very, very helpful uh, and very liberating and freeing, very freeing. I love seeing your face doing that. Like you opened up your arm and you sort of sprung back. Like it's free. Like I, there's more of me now, more yeah. of me available to live, more of me yes. available to love, more mm. life in my life mm. because I've cleared out a lot of shit. Yeah. It's great. It's a good feeling. I mean, there's, none, there's more to go. It's a journey, you know. Yeah. Unfortunately, there is always more to go. What do you think has really helped you in the last four years? Therapy has been, been absolutely vital. Really been vital. So what's that been like? I mean, would you, if you'd seen a white woman like me, like a middle-aged... I have seen, I have seen, a, I, I, my first therapist was a lady like yourself. But, um, uh, uh, and, and that was wonderfully helpful. I found that tremendously helpful for what I needed to address. But this was more, as you said, this, like, this was more of an identity thing. I needed somebody who was similar in that identity, who was familiar with that perspective. And that's been hugely beneficial for me. How was he with you? What was your experience? What did you get uh, from him? Well, well he, I mean, he was the one that um, identified the young black boy. Yeah. You know, he totally got it. First thing, and as soon as he said it, I was, as you doing therapy, ah, ah. Burst into tears. Absolutely screaming. And yeah, you know, he said, that's the young black boy. And, and when I sort of thought about that, and you know, that, that, that I need to take care of him, yeah. I always kind of brings a little bit of a tear to my because I need to hold his yeah. hand. I mean, as soon as he says, hold his hand, you know, get to know him yeah. and look after him, look after yeah. him. And it's really important that I do, really, really important that I do, because when I don't, I think I get myself in trouble. So do you go in and check on him and see how he is? And I should do more. Um, um, in fact, I've always been so busy that I actually cancelled my therapy for the first time in a, in a couple of months. Uh, so it's been two weeks without it. Whilst it's, it's, it is important and necessary to sort of uh, have gaps when you can or when you want. I am looking forward to getting back because all these things, what I'm talking to see, what I'm talking to you about is what I'd be talking to him about. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's been a very interesting uh, two weeks. What you reminded me of, I'm using trauma therapy with internal family system, parts of ourselves. And working with people with the part of them at the point where they got frozen de developmentally, say like a, a six-year-old who was screamed at or whatever happened, and that the adult version of them picks up that six-year-old and takes them out of the traumatic place and creates a safe place inside themselves. Oh, interesting. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I can't say one recently, but the kind of thing they do is give them their snuggly or their little rabbit or their, and they kind yeah. of talk to them. They take it in turns from the adult to talk to the six-year-old and then the six-year-old to talk back. And it's wow. incredible how 
truthful and real it is that they really get into the six-year-old and they're cross and they've been left and they're lonely. And mm. then the adult wow. says, you know, I'm so sorry I left you. I didn't realize. And and so now that with clients, they have a kind of regular practice where they check in and see how they are. And wow. so that when you say like running through the village, it's like, I'd take your hand. Let's go. It'll be fun. Let's go running <laughs> through the village. <laughs> go and get an ice cream at the end. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> often we say, what do you need? What are you frightened of? Mm. Because at that age, you didn't have the emotional intelligence or insight or no. words or anything. Not as a child, no. Not until it all came crashing down, I don't think. But I can make sense of it. I think I think it had to, that that naivety had to come down. That, yeah. That innocence yeah. had to come down. And I'm, in a sense, lucky that I got away with it, you know, but it came down in a very spectacular, the delusions were extraordinary. The hallucinations were extraordinary. It was an extraordinary experience. Do you want to say, can, I mean, I don't want to kind of put you into a heightened state, but can you talk about them? Oh, just high energy, lots of, you know, high energy and uh, lots of dopamine, uh, because often before psychotic episode, there's a build-up, isn't there? So a mania, there's a mania, mania. Sort of a mania, excitement, sort of chatterbox, and and getting extraordinary connections and finding, seeing things, colours, and just extraordinary experience. I, I almost regret. <laughs> I mean, I almost miss because no drug is like that. It was just extraordinary, sort of heightened. Colors, bright colors in the sky, intense, so intense. intense experience of life that was really amazing. Then it gets to a point where then you're not sleeping and you're exhausted, and it totally goes the other way. And that's when I started blacking out and waking up on Oxford Street at three o'clock in the morning and not not knowing how I got there and trying to walk home and waking up at two o'clock in the afternoon in Camden. No idea how I got there. No terrifying. idea. Terrifying. I was literally just wandering around London. I was a very, I was very lucky to survive it. What would you say to that? Was he twenty-two? That twenty-two-year-old. Twenty-three. Yeah. Twenty-three. Mm. What would you say to him now? It's hard. It, that's a really hard thing. I, it's almost like I, it's almost like asking me that question. You might as well ask me the, the question: What would I say to the person who made that documentary? Because the person who made that documentary wasn't isn't the person I am now. You've so it was almost the same. Much. Totally changed. And um, I and that's why I'm in regret. There's a probably a part of me I've been probably been faking it for thirty years, which I really regret. I've been faking it. And just since making that documentary and finding out all this stuff, I wish I'd have dealt with all this years ago. And that's your message to people listening is like, get in there early, get in there get early. Get in. Get in there early. And don't live your life with regrets and stuff like that. Not, not that I'm sort of pining, I'm pining, but I would say I, 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 if, if I'd have had the opportunity, I would have wished I'd have done this work earlier. So um, it must change you as a parent. You must be a different parent now than you were. Because how old are your kids? 20 or something? 
2018. Yeah, I'm trying to be available. I'm always trying to be available to them and, and, and talk to them. Um, but do you feel closer to them now? There's yes, more of I do. you. Yeah, there's more of me around. Um, but I also know that I could do more and, and that I've got to, you know, be emotionally available to them as well. Now I can't you know, just, just be, you know, best dad in the world, happy, clappy dad all the time. You just got to be make sure that if they do need to speak to me on any level, that um, I'm available to them. And from the racist perspective, how would you protect them? Like your mum was a great protector of you, wasn't she? She was a wonderful protector of me. I, and that's probably a big fear because um, we live in a very different world now. And I was thinking about talking about this with another friend of mine on Saturday, how when my, our parents brought us up, we were just in the house. That was it. You know, we were all four kids in the house. 98% of the time until we were about 14, 15, always in the house. And it's a different world. I mean, there was no computers, no phones, there was no nothing, you know. So, so you went so, to school and came home. You went to school, came home, had your bikes. When I maybe had a couple of rides on the bike, that was it. That was life. Totally different world now. My daughters have got their own computers. They can watch whatever they want. They can find their own. To protect them now is very different. It's a whole different ball game in terms of protecting them. I think that battle's already lost, unfortunately. My daughter was on the beach the other day with some friends of hers and a couple. And, you know, my daughter was with some non-binary people. And this couple went nuts, started kicking off and shouting at them. And, and you just think, God, you know, maybe that's the new racism. That's, that's, that's her generational experience of hatred is being screamed at by people for being, you know, being sitting around transgender people. Do they not experience racism with a black dad? I don't think so. Not, not, not yet. You know, they've not really, not really spoken about anything that's been too aggressive. But no, I don't think they've, they've not said anything to me. That must be a good thing. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you know, look, they're going to experience it at some point. The thing I'm happy about is that they're both conscious of their colour, whereas I yes. think at, at, at their age, I don't think I was. It wasn't. It didn't matter to me that much. Whereas they are, they've grown up in a world where beauty and colour and colorism is, is 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 on a different level. So they're used to seeing black icons, used to seeing sexy black women, and and they, you know musicians, they, actors, musicians, performers, actors, performers, everything. So. You know, we're living in a different world. So you never saw a version of yourself on the stage, did you? No, anywhere. Never. So I never had any. We, we, our generation didn't grow up with that. You know, there weren't that many black people. There still aren't that many black people on television, except in adverts. How do you think you broke through? How was it that you? Was it your purely your talent? You're a great actor. I think you know I was lucky. You know, I was very lucky. I came along at a time um, when, but perhaps a curiosity to diversify but I, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time leave around the right place at the right time and, and I was very busy as a younger actor it was when I reached maturity that's when my work stopped here because it's, it's, that's the problem here so, as for young actors there's quite a lot of work but for mature leading authoritative central three dimensional roles for some reason in this country people don't write them for, or, or think that it has to be a black part written by a black actor for a black I, I don't know but somehow it's not done that's so interesting I didn't know that 
So you had to go to America. All of us do that. You know, all, all, all of them have had, have had to seek international fame in order to be, maybe one or two of the younger ones are now beginning to, but that, that's the wonderful thing about it is that now there's generations of young black actors. I can remember the time when it was just me, him or him. And that was it. And now yes. just literally hundreds of fantastic that's... black actors. You look really excited. That's such a lovely thing. It's great. It's so great. They all acknowledge and give me the old thanks, man. Which Do is they, so what, sweet. Are they say are they standing on the on the shoulders of giants? You're, you're one we of the giants. I, I was. I was. You know, there were people who had work for me. You know, who, who inspired me. Sidney nice Poitier is the only one oh, I can yeah, think yeah, of. Exactly, Sidney Poitier, or, or here. You know, you know, the, the, uh, Hugh Quashier, Darren McDonald. Yeah. Robbie G, Eddie Nesta, that generation that when they came through, they were hugely inspirational for me. So, um, I'm, you know, I guess I was the first one that did it on television, in, you know, regularly like that. It's interesting, or I'm interested, that in America, which has a different kind of racism, which is in some ways more overt. More, more overt, yes. You could get the roles in the U.S., Again, I think it's because the black experience in America is very different. Uh, and, it, you know, if you think that slavery existed on the continent of America, all, it was all there. All this, all that trauma they've both been through, black and white, been through together, if you know what I mean. Um, but they've experienced it in that, in that same location. Whereas in England, because it sort of did everything in the Caribbean, because its trauma was sort of offshored, it, there's a whole lot of the country that it just has no experience of that trauma. All that trauma was in the Caribbean for us. I've never thought of it like that. Psychologically. Psychologically in America, there's nowhere to hide. Everyone knows the facts and some people can choose to deny it and they do. And some people will still be racist and they are, but it's because they, it's because they fully, they fully know the situation. Whereas I think here, because a lot of people don't know that trauma, well, I have no experience of that trauma. Um, their opinions may be different. I'm trying to kind of make sense of it. I'm using that word. Um, psychologically, I guess if trauma is ignited by sight, sound, touch and smell, mm. if it hasn't actually, I mean, it did in the 17th, 18th century, didn't it? But it, we stopped slavery here. Uh, much earlier. So slavery wasn't actually legal in, in England, which is Ever. another... It, well, well it, it, it wasn't illegal. But if you were black in England, you could, and you were walking down the street, you could be sandbagged. You could be carpetbagged, smashed over the head and find yourself on a slave on ship a out, to the, out to the Caribbean. So, But it was never actually legal. It only became legal after um, Lord Mansfield. Uh, it was a part of the uh, Somerset case which Somerset case was brought by an American Negro who could see that black people were walking freely in England and said, well, well how come you're all walking around here and you're not all slaves? And uh, he said, no, no, slavery is or it's not legal in England. So he took his master to court, took his master to the high courts and said, I'm not going back with you. I'm in England. And if slavery is illegal in England, then you can't own me. It became this huge case. Oh, my God, I didn't know that. Yeah, it became this huge case. And that's the case that almost kind of, that was the thread that unraveled the whole of the slave trade because Mansfield knew if he found Somerset to be 
and not the possession of. I think it was Henry Sullivan. I might be wrong with that. You've got to you've got to play that role in the movie, right? Well, this is what we're doing. This is what are we're all you? doing. It's 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 in it's in the pipeline. So these are the stories that I'm making. These are the things that I want to do and stories that I want to tell. And um, have so much meaning. The reason why you want to make also because America has had you know, that program Roots. Remember that? Um, yeah, of course. Roots, which of course. Is very brutal, very powerful. We've never had it in this country. We've no. never had our own, where everyone's everyone's on cards on the table. This is what happens. Stuff. And so I want to make that. Fantastic. Good for you. I have one last question. I'm rambling. Sorry about that. You're not rambling at all. I think I'm completely fascinated. I guess the question is, given the process that you've been through, I guess from when you were 22, 23, but also in the last seven years, if you could say kind of two things that you've learned that are key things, what are they? Um, well, to, to sit with shame and to sit with my trauma or pain and sort of face it and not yeah. be not be terrified by it anymore. I'd say that's been probably the best thing because it's not the, the big bogeyman anymore. I've had a look in all the cupboards over the last seven years. It's been great to have a look, have a mention about. Uh, lots of people told me not, not to go on this journey. Lots of people who I knew were quite afraid when I said I was going to start looking at my past and and uh, writing this book. But it's been really, really helpful and um, difficult, extraordinarily beneficial. And so important. I mean... The thing I kind of talk about, which in a way you said much more powerfully, is that pain is the agent of change, that when you allow yourself to feel the pain and support yourself mm. to feel the pain, then you heal. And it's yeah. the things that you do to block the pain that do you harm over time and, and sometimes for generations. You nailed it there. Yeah, absolutely. Um you don't want, nobody wants to feel pain. Nobody wants to get burned. Of course get, you don't. Why would you? That. Why would you look at that horrible <laughs> mucky stuff? You know, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so thank you so much. Um, I've really, really loved this conversation. You're amazing. I am so oh. pleased that you've joined us. And do you want to tell people about your book and the doc and anything else you're doing? Well, my book is called Maybe I Don't Belong Here. Newly um, out in paperback. Pan Macmillan, no, newly out in paperback. Um, very proud of that. People constantly send me messages on Instagram having read it, and, and you know, it's extraordinary how, how common it is, psychosis. How many people experience psychosis? It's really shattering experience, not just for the people going through it, but for the people who experience, watch, can watching somebody go through it. It's been a, a, a great comfort to a lot of people because... It is a very common experience. Very common. And also, I have to say, uh, people with experiencing psychosis now can be sitting in A&E for like five days because they can't get treatment. It's a, it's, it's a mess. Yeah, it's a, it's a real mess. So thank you very, thank very you. much. I really enjoyed it. And you've been so courageous through your honesty and being daring to face yourself enables us to face ourselves and that changes people's perception of what they can bear and what they find unbearable so that if he can do it i can do it that is a huge thing 
And I think particularly in racialized communities, because there is, I think, something like um, only 15% of clients go to therapy are, yeah. or are uh, people of color. Yeah, I know. It's just not done in our community. It's, it's getting better. It is getting but, better. Um, it's changing. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And not many black male therapists either, I have to say. Which is why I prize mine. Yes. Now, I think it's a, a, a valuable resource and I wish people used it more. Yeah. So thank you so much. Thank you. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Hi, Sophie and Emily. This is our last episode of Series 3, and a cracking episode it is to end on. There was so much I got from this, what came up for you both. Yeah, it was a great conversation, wasn't it? I think there were lots of different things that stood out for me, but one of them was around that splitting off of self, I guess, of the parts of you that are not accepted, that are not allowed to be assimilated or too dangerous or have been bullied um, and that kind of lead to that splitting, which then... You know, it's that phrase of like, it's, it was both a breakdown and a breakthrough of that, trying to resolve those parts of himself in his story. For for our dad, uh, he experienced a lot of horrible anti-Semitism as a boy. And I think there was a lot of maybe ambivalence about how to pass that part of his identity down. And I know for me, um, it's very different and, and less um, extreme but there's a real, like, I don't really know what to do with that bit. I've had a bat mitzvah. I'm technically Jewish, but I also feel around other Jewish people that I don't really belong, but also don't quite belong in a church either when I'm with my Christian husband. And that process of trying to assimilate, particularly like our great-grandparents, but then there's something that never quite fits the story and how, how to resolve those things. I don't know. What about you? And I also thought a lot about the importance of trying to integrate different parts of yourself and when those parts of yourself become really fragmented, that is untenable psychologically in the long term, that you might be able to manage it for a certain period of time. But actually, in the long term, if those parts of yourself are very, very distinct and very separate and not really communicating with each other, then I think it does lead to a big rupture at some point. And I think, Mum, some of the work that you have done around internal family systems and talking to parts of self is incredibly helpful when trying to work out those different parts of yourself. And then I guess sort of slightly separately to that, what you were talking about, Sophie, is sort of to do with identity and belonging and how do you find a sense of belonging. And I think about that a lot, actually. And I think probably all of us do in different ways. For me, I think about it 
less is the sort of Jewish part of me, which I actually did always feel like I don't belong anywhere particularly, <laughs> but also because my husband is American, but we're raising our children in England, yet part of their identity will be American. And how do I help them feel like they belong? So already I've heard my three-year-old have conversations with his three-year-old friends around how he speaks three languages. <laughs> so he speaks <laughs> English, American, and British. <laughs> very, very multilingual. I've heard him explaining to one of his friends how you can call a garden a garden, but in American you say backyard. This thing that he's already sort of figuring out, there are different ways of being and we use different words and it means different things. I think a lot about like how do you integrate those different parts of yourself? And obviously for David, it was so much bigger and more distinct and more unbearable. We all have different identities and and with David and, and with your dad, M Michael, their racial, ethnic, religious identities, which have experienced a lot of racism in their different ways. And so the instinct is to suppress them and cut them off in order to belong and be part of the community and have a sense of safety, which is the thing that we all want. There are so many different parts that we can cut off. Our angry part, our envious part, our part that feels stupid. So for people listening, it's in a way the work is first of all internal, isn't it, with your different parts, finding and naming what the different parts are within you and allowing them and having a cohesive, collaborative sense of all of your different parts, sense of your different identities that can speak and are allowed and belong. And then you find a way of representing that when you step into the world and connect with your friends, with your work, with, with society. Yes, and I think you don't have to like all of your different identities. You don't have to like them, but you have to know that, that they're, they're accepted on some level. Right. And I think that can come out in psychosis in an extreme case, but it also, I think it comes out in all sorts of other ways for most people, often in projection. So the thing that you hate most about yourself or you fear most about yourself or the bit that you can't go near, you then put it on somebody else and are like, ugh that person is terrible. I'm going to like demonize them because actually it's something I can't really touch in myself or I'm afraid of. That's so true. The only thing I would add is, it, is that there's like the internal work that you described, mom, but then there's also the thing in psychotherapy, which sometimes we can miss is understanding that experience within context, within culture, within society. And that like both is like the impact of what those racial prejudices or parental experiences or gender or whatever have impacted and, and trying to heal those and then also still needing to be able to live in the world where many of those prejudices still exist and it made me think about the value he found in having a black male therapist and I just think it's such an interesting question I don't think there's one answer to but I would love your thoughts on it's like obviously we know it's an overwhelmingly white overwhelmingly female population I think mum you were saying earlier it's 84 percent 84% female, but in the States, it's 2% black psychotherapists. Yeah. And there's a real question, isn't there? There's like, to what extent can we, as white women, <laughs> psychotherapists, you know, expand our education and learning and understanding appreciation of these kind of experiences for people who are different from us? And also there might be ways that we just can't meet 
someone in their experience because for them there's a real value in having an identification with someone who had experiences like them or can resonate on a particular frequency. I think that's really true and I think what David described as a very sort of pertinent example in that for different parts of his life, different things that he was working on, different things that he was trying to figure out, different people were the right people. So at some point, I think he did have a white therapist and that was the right person for him then. And then he just realized, actually, this work that I'm doing on my identity, I need someone who is the same color skin as I am and the same gender as I am. And I think that can be incredibly powerful. There can also be something about having somebody who is different to you, who is open to exploring what it's like to be different. As therapists, I think it's our responsibility to name that difference in the room and then allow the other person to go there, not go there, initiating the conversation. I agree. And I'm interested in that. I feel like we're getting better, although not brilliant, at naming racial differences and gender differences. I think what's still really hard to talk about is class differences. I think that's still a really taboo and hard to name difference that may come up in the therapy room. And I I don't know the statistics either, but I imagine that the vast majority of psychotherapists are also middle class. Because it's less in your face. There are lots of different signifiers of class. My husband is reading this anthropological book called Watching the English and he's trying to work out like how to figure out English people because turns out we're quite different to Americans. So it's written by this woman called Kate Fox, who's an anthropologist, and she talks a lot about class and how to an outsider. It's really subtle. It's like little words that you might use for like toilet or loo or if you say what or pardon me. And it's like these things that if you were not English, you would never, ever recognize. And so I think class is is harder to name because it's less obvious. Like I wouldn't necessarily assume anything about somebody's class just from meeting from them for the first time, whereas the color of their skin, their gender is usually more. That is true, but there's also, I think, partly more fear about it because it's also true to some extent about we don't know how people identify racially or ethnically, do we? You know there is visible You can see that you are physically different, even if you don't know how that person identifies. Is a lot of what we're talking about the discomfort with difference in every aspect of our lives um, and that where there is difference, there can be judgment, there can be fear, there can be projection, as you said, there can be um, a sense of otherness or fear of getting it wrong. What I get from what you're saying in all of these different domains is that when we can name the differences, that's all we need to do. We can't fix them. We don't even need to bridge them. We just need to acknowledge them. And in acknowledging them, I think something happens that allows me and the other person or me and my belief or whatever it is to to have its place. Because otherwise it feels like it, you're, you become oppositional. My difference against your difference. My right against your wrong. Rather than, like we've often said on this podcast, we've said it so often, the dialectic of allowing lots of different viewpoints, perspectives, beliefs. There is no one right. What that brings to mind is that I was completely ignorant 
although I kind of knew it, but I hadn't got the narrative about the difference of our attitude to slavery from the US and how that's affected racism here as opposed to there. Yes, I was really interested to hear him say that. And I've actually ordered a book. Um, it's called This Is Not America by Tom Owalade. And it's just published in June. It speaks to that of saying we have a really different experience and history around race and slavery and prejudice and that American narratives have really dominated the airwaves, which confuses our understanding of what it's like to be black in Britain. It sounds really interesting. And I had never thought about the idea of like, yes, it's very easy for us in Britain to other it, to like be like it's over there somewhere. It's not something that I have to think about. Also, the UK population like is much, much less diverse than in the US as well in terms of skin colour and therefore it's that makes it easier to other as well. And the other thing about difference that I thought, you know, if we're broadening that spectrum is the difference of people who do have the feeling of sort of shame that can hang around the experience of having had a psychotic episode or being someone that hears voices or has these kind of experiences that don't fit our mainstream understanding of what is normal. <laughs> and I thought he was very interested about that and psychosis. I think there are often in medicalized situations in clinics that can uh, kind of end up with an experience of something wrong with you or something bad about you or there's something shameful or embarrassing about this thing that happened, this sort of episode. Not always all the time. But I think there are places out there that are more inclusive, that being maybe a normal part of your life or part that you can engage with with less shame. So there's like the Hearing Voices Network that runs group across the UK. There's just groups of people come together who have this experience of hearing voices and they get to explore what that's like for them, what those voices might mean to them without too much judgment or categorizing. I think hearing voices is such um, an interesting one because I think that it's much more common than people think and it doesn't mm. always mean something frightening. Is I think it's also cultural. So I worked with quite a big Hispanic population in a previous job, and it actually was not that uncommon to hear voices, and it wasn't necessarily seen as, as this sort of scary, there's something wrong with your brain thing. And then I think if you have a child or a teenager who's saying they're hearing voices, the gut reaction can sometimes be, ah, oh my gosh, there's like something really, really wrong. And if you are in that situation, I think I would just recommend like slowing down a little bit and exploring with your child, like what does that really mean? Often voices you're hearing are really other parts of yourself and we all have these other parts of yourself. And it's about just listening and hearing what they have to say and thinking of this, this isn't necessarily something outside of you this is probably something that your body is telling you um but I, I think it's it's much more common than people not not necessarily psychosis but hearing voices I think it's much more common than people think and obviously in my job people talk to the person that's died all mm -hmm. of the time and sometimes they feel ashamed of it but they also they hear their voice so they ask them a question shall I move house and they hear internally or you know they hear clearly from the person that's died Yes, darling, <laughs> go ahead, buy the house. It looks great. And that is very powerful. And sometimes they feel embarrassed and don't tell other people. But, I mean, most people I know who bereaved have a continuing conversation that is a, a relational conversation with the person that's died. And that can be very healing. The 
other thing about psychosis is that I read this very interesting UCL research study about being an ethnic minority and psychosis and having ethnic minority status in the UK, it doubles the odds of you having psychosis. And what was really interesting is that that wasn't to do with race, because when they compared it to countries like in the Caribbean, the rate of psychosis was the same as for the general population. And so it was something specifically about the experience of being a minority, an ethnic minority, that really increases your vulnerability to psychosis. Psychosis has a lot to do with the dopamine system in your brain and that dopamine like the reward circuit and that when you're an ethnic minority, so much of your life is not in your control. And that really, really interrupts the dopamine mechanism in your brain. And the dopamine is is very sort of strongly correlated with psychosis. So I think what they found is that your risk is really context dependent. It's not to do with race. It's really to do with being a minority. It's like another thing that makes it harder. And that it's our biology in our context that responds, basically, is what you're saying. So people don't have a choice. It's like their biology leaps in response to the context, to the context of being a minority. And that, that sense of disempowerment. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, there's so much that we can say, but I think we we need to stop, unfortunately. Um, we'll put lots of links and um, information in the show notes. So Sophie and Emily, thank you. Um, and particularly thank you for David for being so honest and giving us such amazing, rich insights through his daring to travel within himself and understand himself and change himself, um, and through that changing us. So I feel very grateful. For those of you that this is an episode that you think will help others, do rate and subscribe or share it with a friend. We look forward to seeing you in Series 4 in the autumn.